Hello and welcome back to the IPA's Looking Forward, a weekly podcast of debate and discussion about politics and ideas. This week our story starts in Washington DC, as Scott Morrison blew in and out of town just in time to avoid the latest wrangle over impeachment of President Trump. We'll have a look then at another coal mine in Queensland caught in approvals hells and battling bizarre legal protections for environmental activists. And then we'll run what's becoming a recurring segment, which is, what is Kevin Rudd banging on about this week? Then in our Books and Culture segment, we'll look at The Dream Machine, a book about the early history of computing, a new journal of Austrian economics and libertarianism, that's definitely one for the aficionados, uh, the classic novel Wolf Hall, and a reflection on the Canberra Raiders and what it means for the decline of Western civilization. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Zach. Looking forward to that one. I'm Scott Hargraves, editor of the IPA Review, joined today by my co-host from RMIT University, Dr Chris Berg. Good morning, Scott. Also in the IPA studio, we have an economist and an historian, my colleagues, IPA research fellows, Kurt Wallace and Dac- Dr Zach Gorman. Howdy. As opposed to Dac... Dac- <laughs> doc- Dr. Zach Gorman. Right. There you go. Yeah, trained professional. Trained professional. Trained professional. Do not forget this podcast is brought to you by the Institute of Public Affairs. If you're not already a supporter, please do go to ipa.org.au and see how you can join or donate either to our general fund or indeed to Climate Change the Facts, our latest publication that we are in the market for at the moment uh, to make sure we can fund the research. If you're on an app, please do give us a review and make it a good one. Uh, we are going to start off with uh, Washington, D.C. As I mentioned, um, Scott Morrison's just been over there and uh, and then everything's hit the fan. I'm not sure the two events are connected, are they, Chris? I don't think they're completely connected. But So Scott Morrison, as you say, has been in the U.S. this week um, giving the normal speechifying about the deep and on uh, abiding relationship that we have with the United States. Here's a sample quote. So we pledge ourselves here at the dawn of a second century of mateship. I dare you not to shudder when you hear that. Um, my real takeaway is that the press gallery is having a great time. They seem to be having a real ball. These sorts of trips um, don't mean a great deal for um, the Australian-American alliance, and I might actually get Zach to talk about that in a second. But it, it, these trips, I find, they, they bring out two genres of journalism, both of which that I really loathe, and we've seen a great rich pickings of both of those. The first one is the journalists visit, visit Washington, um, uh, which is all the journalists get to go to Washington and get to sit in the Oval Office um, or, or hear press conferences in the Oval Office and it's like being forced to watch holiday slides from all the worst people that you can imagine. Then the second genre, and this is particular to Australia, is the enormous rapport between leaders genre of um, uh, journalism. This is the idea that no matter what Australian Prime Minister meets, what Australia President, they get along better than any other leaders have before in history. And we have seen so much of that. But, of course, the reality is that the Australia-American alliance is much, much more than just a couple of Prime Ministers and Presidents getting along famously and finishing each other's sentences, isn't it, Zach? Well, I'm not sure that it's always been um, just as simple as that. I mean, famously, Trump hung up on Malcolm Turnbull. So things have shifted into positive territory. Um, Trump really likes Morrison because he's a prop. He can show around as someone who's strong on border protection, someone who's pro-coal, all these things that Trump likes to live, in, likes to live up to. Um, it is the first state dinner that an Australian Prime Minister has been invited to, to since 2006. 
So there is a bit of that harking back to the Howard Bush years. I found it interesting, speaking of the sort of 100 years of mateship and how long the US alliance um, has been going, they're talking about 100 years because of fighting together in World War One. They're not referring specifically to ANZUS, which is the sort of legal basis for the Australia-US alliance. But it was interesting, I noted in Morrison's speech, he compared Trump to Teddy Roosevelt, which would normally be a bit of an odd um, comparison. Obviously, they're both very bombastic figures. They've both got a lot of personality. They ha have a lot of grand visions that they bring to the presidency. Um, but Teddy Roosevelt is very much a left-wing Republican. He's probably the most left-wing Republican president of the 20th century. Um, but what that actually draws a connection to, I thought that maybe it was just a lazy speechwriter, but maybe <laughs> it's a really intelligent speechwriter mm. because the real origins of the Australia-US alliance was Teddy Roosevelt's Great White Fleet tour of 1905 during the Russo-Japanese War that was meant to show off American might and it came and visited Australian harbours and it was actually um, so important did Australians think this show of... So in the racial language of the time of Anglo-Saxon military might in the South Pacific was that more Sydney-sizers visited the Great White Fleet than just about any other public spectacle that had ever existed at that point in time. And just before we go on to further comment, I just want to clarify before the intersectional activists jump on this podcast that it wasn't called the Great White Fleet because it was Anglo-Saxon, was it? <laughs> it, was, it? The ships were white, but that, that, Thank un you. <laughs> that undertone was definitely there. There was, there was racial language Te Technically, they were painted white. <laughs> this is important. <laughs> uh, no, but the, you're, you're absolutely right. Yeah, I think it's um, interesting, um, uh, interesting times for the Australian-US alliance as we have increasing tensions with China. I think that an uh, interesting thing out of the, the meeting is... Morrison's uh, reaffirmation of the alliance with the US uh, and in some ways raising further the cons concerns with, with China, which is um, a growing concern for both Australia and the United States. I mean, this comes in the middle of one of the biggest political fights in American history for at least a um, couple of decades, which is the um, impending, potentially impending impeachment um, hearings and impeachment of Donald Trump, depending on how it goes politically, of course. Um, so as Scott Morrison was flying in and out of the United States, the drums were beating much harder on impeachment. Today, it seems like um, uh, the Democrats have all the votes they need for an impeachment in the House. The issue is, of course, a technical um, one and a big scandal. Um, the Constitution says that impeachment um, uh, to, to impeach a president for something like treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors, then you'd have to pass an impeachment vote in the House and then it would go to trial in the Senate. The debate, though, is um, about the claims made, in fact, supported by Donald Trump and his personal lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, that they repeatedly asked and pressured the Ukrainian president, president Volodymyr, pronounce that Volodymyr, I Google that, Scott, for um, the edification of a listen, Zelensky to launch an investigation into one of the potential nominees, Joe Biden and his son Hunter Biden for Hunter's involvement in a Ukrainian firm. Obviously, the Mueller investigation, which we've spoken at length on this podcast, didn't seem to go anywhere. And for a long time, there wasn't really much movement towards impeachment in the United States Congress. But now over the last really 48 to 30, uh, 48 hours, 72 hours, um, things have changed really 
dramatically and it looks like this is going to be the next 12 to 18 months of American politics. If you thought that Brexit was complicated, welcome to impeachment hearings at Zach. Well, it's two archaic constitutions um, falling apart simultaneously. So obviously last night the um, High Court in Great Britain made a massive landmark decision that may undermine the entire unwritten constitution. <laughs> and in America, you, you have... Should, you should very quickly explain that before we, bu- we bump back to America. Oh, well, this is, this is the fact that um, the Queen proroguing Parliament on the advice of Prime Minister Johnson has been ruled to be illegal. I think it's based on the Bill of Rights from 1689 or some ridiculous thing that they've managed to pick out and made a, a very politicised decision out of. Well, this, the High Court itself is a very modern uh, invention. It wasn't, it wasn't a Tony Blair who set the thing up. I mean, yeah, well, the, the whole concept of so, ju- so judicial that... review is something that was explicitly rejected. There was a famous land right ruling by Edward Cook um, in the early 17th century called Bonham's Case. Remember where, it well. Um, <laughs> Well, I've just been writing about it, where it was ruled that the judiciary could overturn a um, law that was passed into statute that was entirely contradictory to the common law. But that actual that sort of um, brand of that strand of constitutional evolution turned out to be a dead end. It never went anywhere in England and actually became a thing more in the United States. Um, and the United States, it's going through impeachment. Impeachment. It's very much an archaic institution that comes from a time in which the ministry was directly chosen by the king. The ministry was not accountable to to the parliament. This is before responsible government. Um, Obviously, the president isn't directly accountable to the Congress in the US system. It isn't a responsible government system, but it is still um, a bit archaic in the sense that right before an election, regardless of the circumstances of the case, Right before an election, the Congress thinks it is within their right, within their sort of privilege, to step in and intervene and decide who the president of the United States should be, rather than leaving that to the will of the people. I, I don't, year. I don't, I don't think that's right. So the the U.S. system is set up so it, the the delicate balance of the U.S. system between the judiciary, the legislature, and the executive doesn't always work. It's not a delicate balance, and we've seen a massive amount of power being pulled into the executive. And I think that's a huge and significant problem. But the genius of that system is that each power, each um, each, each side of that triangle is balanced against each other and has weapons it can use against each other if it thinks it's in the national interest, whether that's um, uh, based on um, legal precedent in the case of the um, uh, the judiciary or or um, constitutional precedent, or if that's um, based on the democratic will of the voters that support the representatives or support the president. Now, I I I I, I have a lot of really strong views about what's going on right now. I think what Donald Trump has done, or the suggestions about what Donald Trump has done is a clear and unambiguous abuse of power trying to use American foreign policy to target your own domestic political opponents. Is, is it, We would be outraged if it happened in the United States. We would be absolutely outraged if the Democrats had done it. This is the process that the Constitution provides to respond. The only argument you could make, I think, against it is, well, strategically, maybe it's not a great idea because there is precisely, as you say, going to be an election. That that sounds to me to be a strategic question that Democrats have just decided not to overly worry about. 
Yeah, this is the tipping point for the Democrats. I mean, we reflected on on, on the uh, Mueller investigation, where uh, the only case which really he he left in the in the hands of Congress was about obstruction of justice, uh, the volume two of his report, because he didn't he couldn't find a smoking gun in volume one about collusion uh, with Russia. So the the Democrats were left with a very restive activist wing, um, you know, the Cortez wing, Casio uh, Cortez, etc that were pushing for impeachment, but they didn't uh, have the smoking gun and, and uh, Nancy Pelosi has been holding them back. Uh, and of course they're concerned that if they get it wrong, uh, this, could, this could blow up and Trump will actually uh, take back the House. You know, there's a lot of, you know, marginal seat holding Democrats that would be quite worried uh, that this could blow up and actually lead to a, a backlash. Uh, presumably uh, the Republicans campaigning that this is an attempt to overturn the popular will but so it's it is interesting that perhaps they've just been waiting for it uh which is good tactics you wait for something to turn up that's rule one of politics <laughs> is wait for something to turn up and now it has and and of course it's still a political process it's a you can, it's not about the national interest it's about the democrats political interest whether oh, sure. they think it'll actually work to their advantage but it's it, it is very sorry, skeptical of what's being pushed by the the democrat party and, and the media at large because of the history of Russiagate. We all, they were peddling that and um, they weren't just waiting for something to happen. They really jumped the gun on Russiagate, you know, pushing this story that turned out to be uh, very little of what they were actually um, alleging. And at the moment, what we know is based on a few uh, comments from Trump and his lawyer Giuliani, uh, Giuliano. Um, and then also from an alleged whistleblower who didn't actually have direct... Um, interaction with the communications between Trump and the president of Ukraine. So there's a lot still to play out on, you know, what were the context, the, the content of that phone call uh, and whether Trump actually did do anything that is impeachable. Um, the interesting thing is that Trump's come out and said that he's going to release the full transcript. Mm. Uh, and, and when he said that, the, the markets jumped up. <laughs> the Dow Jones jumped up. Um, that's uh, the sign that... Um, the market thought that was a, a good indication because, you know, why would Trump release the, the transcript if it's got impeachable content in there? So <laughs> why does Trump do anything? I, I, I think there's there's two points that I want to make. The, the first one is this is very different from Brexit insofar as well, what's happened with Brexit and, and, and the judiciary in the United Kingdom because this is a democratically elected chamber um, challenging a democratically elected president. So the, the um, people who have been put into the Congress, into the House, who are pursuing this also have their own democratic mandate. So it's not like um, a non-majoritarian and non-democratic um, uh, body of the government is trying to, to reject a democratic chosen one. Hang on. You, just, you will get to make your point, but you just spoke eloquently about the balance of powers in the US Constitution, and one of them is the Supreme Court, which is also yeah. unelected. You, no, can't, no, you can't have it both. No, 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 it's it, either it, a fine and beautifully designed balance, or it's not. Yeah, no, no, no. I, I don't think it's a fine and beautifully designed balance, but I like the idea in that, in that balance. And I am going to defend a democratic legislature um, using its powers to go up against a democratically elected executive. Um, the other point, though, about the Mueller, so I, I, I agree that the problem with what's happened post Mueller is that um, w w there was so many wild claims made by the press about what um, uh, about Russian in, um, involvement in the 2016 election that it is very, very hard to trust them. 
But on the face of it, this is already significantly worse than most of the biggest claims in the Mueller investigation. And the reason why I think that is because it's one thing for the, it, the, the worst thing that happened in the um, that the Mueller investigation released uh, discovered was the email from a someone connected to the Russian government to Donald Trump Jr. saying that yeah you know we've got some material and Donald Trump Jr. responds with well yeah that that would be cool that that would be great now these are private citizens yes they're in the middle of a election campaign private citizens hearing being approached by someone and saying yeah no we we love dirt on our opponents that would be great this is quite different because donald trump is now the president of the united states and in charge of american well, foreign policy well, we using depends what the, he said well I, i'm basing this precisely on what he said he said because he he said he repeatedly asked for um a investigation to be held into joe biden's son to get joe biden Joe Biden and Joe Biden's no, he son. Didn't, he didn't say that he said it to get Joe Biden. He said, <laughs> what are you doing about that boy? Uh, the, the only <laughs> this is an unnecessarily fine distinction, Scott. The only real, and, and it is a significant difference, but the only real difference is the fact that Trump is president of the United States. There is um, reports that the Clinton campaign And, and he actually, approached them. And he yeah, approached no, them. No, the Clinton campaign um, went to the Ukrainian government to try to get, dig up dirt on a um, Trump aide during the campaign. So there is, there dirt, is dig a track. Dirt, dirt digging is one thing. Calling the new president and saying, hey, look, um, uh, it, it, it's great that you're the new president and we need you to launch an investigation into this son of our opponent. That's pretty bad. That's pretty bad. Yeah, but so, so are the <laughs> circumstances it, of this of the son that had no background in energy or gas companies going um, going to the Ukraine and getting um, and getting involved basically through an act of corruption basically because they thought this, that having the I, vice president I, I, I feel will, like they did a reference check. Th on this it. will sink Biden's campaign. Apart yeah, from, no, apart from anything no, else, no, this actually I, takes I, him I out of the it, field. I hope it does because I think. He um, uh, he's actually a catastrophically bad guy. Yeah, yeah, he's, he's completely <laughs> well, lost it. Um, well, he's still better than the rest of the Democratic race. But um, <laughs> the thing is, with with Biden, is that he does like there's the the footage of him um, uh, saying that he went over there and he put pressure on the on the on the Ukrainians to to fire this prosecutor who was investigating a the company that his son was working for. So that looks terrible on the face of it, but also just people observing Biden's demeanor of him bragging about how he's engaging in all this. Like, it's just, it's just corruption, basically. But the other thing is, is that um, I think this brings a, a broader point of just the use of, like, um, the US uh, with their money um, intervening in other countries' politics. So it's, it's perfectly fine, apparently, for um, America to say, OK, we're going to uh, give you a billion-dollar loan collateral uh, if you do what we say, if, we, if you fire your head prosecutor. Um, that's perfectly fine. But if um, Russia, you know, starts a Facebook account and posts some memes, apparently and that's the <laughs> end of, of um, United States um, democracy and it's a, it's a crisis. And I think it's absolutely absurd and I think it reveals a lot about the political... Ah, so you're, 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 you're making the point, if I could paraphrase, that in, in both cases what, what Joe Biden was doing as vice president and what Trump was doing as president uh, was using the clout of the US to lean on a foreign government, and that is just an accepted practice. And, yeah, and, it's and that's great. And we should, in, doing it in, in that around. story, we should impeach Joe Biden. But, you know, that's not really the game that we're playing right now. No, no. And uh, but, it, but it will kill his campaign. 
Uh, as Zach said, one of the things that Trump and Scott Morrison do agree on is that coal is good. <laughs> uh, Morrison famously brought a, um, a nice shiny lump of black coal into, uh, into Parliament House. As a proud Victorian, I'm still waiting for him to bring a nice, not-so-shiny lump of brown coal from uh, Latrobe Valley into the Parliament, but um, one can only hope... Just more anti-Victorian bias from the <laughs> terrible. New South Wales Liberal Party. <laughs> but I like, you know, I've never met a coal, coal mine I didn't like. There's one in, uh, in Queensland that's uh, struggling through approvals hell at the moment. Um, uh, the New Hope mine, uh, which is actually has operations, uh, needs to open up a new field in order to extend the life of that mine. Indeed, have reached the point where they've had to start laying people off because they can't get that extra approved. But it's thrown up some interesting legal issues. That's right. So um, the coal producer New Hope is trying to gain approval for, um, uh, for as you say, an expansion to its New Ackland mine, which is northwest of Toowoomba. This is apparently um, Australia's longest running mine dispute. Um, but New Hope right now, apart from the problems that it's having getting the approvals, is very um, frustrated by suppliers being targeted, its own suppliers being targeted by anti-coal groups, um, anti-coal groups and environmental groups are pressuring businesses not to deal with them, um, trying to undermine the reputation of their suppliers, and has quite rightly pointed out that secondary boycotts, which is what this is when um, uh, you boycott or target a secondary supplier, not the actual, you don't just boycott the coal mine, you boycott the coal mine suppliers and customers, is unlawful in Australia, with one exception, unless you're doing it for environmental purposes. That's what it says in the Act. Um, uh, if the conduct is substantially related to environmental protection. Now, I think, I, I, I actually don't like... Um, bans on secondary boycotts. I think boycotting is part of a market economy. If firms are going to be allowed to um, be social justice warriors and virtue signal at us, we should be able to virtue signal back to them as well. Um, but the idea that there's a exception for environmental groups to this law strikes me as fundamentally bizarre, but it's quite common in Australian law, isn't it? Yeah, well, under the uh, Environment Protection Biodiversity Conservation Act, there's a, a section that, so this is the, um, the act that, um, that gives um, powers for the, um, the gov government agencies to approve a lot of these, these projects. But there is a, a section 487 which allows environment groups to challenge these decisions. So as a third party, it makes an exception for um, people who don't have a proprietary interest in the deal um, if they are a, an environmental group if they have an environmental interest, they're allowed to challenge uh, the decision. So that's uh, another example of a carve-out that allows these environmental groups to engage in um, their activities and, and engage in lawfare to, to um, string out the, um, the planning processes for for these mines to um, stop the investment from taking place. It, it's bizarre, though. Is it the, the idea... I mean, it, it's fundamentally illiberal to say that something is unlawful unless it's for a good reason, which we've decided environmental lawfare precisely is. We said, oh, yeah, no, you definitely can't do secondary boycotts unless you're, like, unless you love... Um, parrots, yeah. or unless you're really into trees. You know, you're absolutely right. And, and, and I mean, there's some history to this because um, uh, the original Trade Practices Act was, was brought in by, by Whitlam, I believe, 
um, as you say, you start regulating all of these products. And, um, and then uh, the great irony of this was it was in the 1980s at a time when uh, Labor was in government uh, and, of course, uh, uh, the industrial relations system was constructed for the benefit of, of the unions and uh, very much part of the um, uh, central uh, industrial relations system. It was uh, two young uh, lawyers from Melbourne, Michael Kroger and Peter Costello, who identified... Former IPA board member, Michael. F- former IPA uh, president, indeed, I think. Uh, Michael Costello and... Uh, uh, sorry, Michael Kroger and, um, and his barrister, Peter Costello, great activists. They pointed out that this law against secondary boycotts, once you accept that principle, why could it not apply to unions? Because, of course, this is exactly what unions do, and we see it today in the construction industry, is once they declare a particular company black, they then go around and lean on all of the suppliers to that company and say, you cannot deal with this person, and that is a secondary boycott. So they launched legal action and were hugely successful. This this was actually the start of breaking breaking up that that entire industrial relations system. So and and here but then that of course was all rolled back by the Fair Work Act. And here we are again. It's like, oh well yeah, secondary boycotts on a point of principle they're dreadful, dreadful things, but it's okay if unless you're it's union, good. Unless it's for a good purpose, <laughs> which means a union or or the Oki Coal Action Group or or any of these environmental activists. Now, now Scott, you've got exactly what happened in this specific case, don't you? Yes. Uh, so this, the the dis- the mine dispute is, is pretty well covered in the press, but we got to, we uh, we found one of the stories in the uh, the Courier Mail about, and this this is how a lot of these disputes are playing out uh, at the local level. You know, with 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 action groups there, there's organised national groups, but they do have their local champions, just as the mines have their local champions, including people employed by them. Funnily enough, and um, yeah, it's people in the local towns even who are being targeted uh so there's a courier mail story which we, which we can put in the notes um and uh, they they've been telling the, the the people in the town itself that they shouldn't deal with the mines and i did, there was a lovely quote from the uh, local butcher tony james uh he said yeah yeah there's been there's been threats made against him he said but they go over my head some blokes have made comments but no one really threatens a bloke who has four knives on him all day, Mr. James <laughs> said. <laughs> so so he's, he's certainly not concerned about the threat that his butcher shop will be boycotted or he himself will be targeted. Zach, how should we think about secondary boycotts or how do you think about secondary boycotts? Um, I, there is an extent to which um, people should be free to do what they want and that, that, that sort of pressure is not necessarily... You can, you can just leave it there. Yeah, that that, that sort of pressure isn't necessarily something that we as classical liberals want to ban. Um, But the real problem with the whole mining industry right now is that there's there's never any finality. There's such an ends justify the means mentality with all the environmental groups. I mean, we just had the climate election and they lost miserably, but it's never the end. There's always another lawsuit. There's always another butcher to threaten. They just... It's become such a religion to these people that it is really threatening to undermine how civil society works, that we'll have this hardline debate about an issue and eventually the two sides will wear each other out and we'll move on. But the debate will never end because they refuse to let it end even when they lose. This is a big change with the way the regulatory state functions, isn't it, Kurt? Because um, so much of... So we spend a lot of time thinking about, well, there's too much regulation, there's too much red tape. This is provisions in law that just allow for independent authorities, 
like independent bodies and independent um, non-profits to effectively act like lawmakers to hold back otherwise lawful projects, otherwise regulatorily approved projects just by challenging and challenging and challenging. And um, it, and that's a big change, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And, and it's important to note that this is like the, the mode of operation for these environmental groups. They, they admit that this is what they're doing, that they're not actually um, challenging it because you know, it's going to get um, removed by the law. Like it's, they're not going to win the law case. It's just to delay the project and to discourage the investment in the first place. So this is like, it's, it's pretty bad when you have a situation where the environmental groups are saying, we are literally just doing this. We know we're going to lose. We're just don't, delaying the project to try and stop the project from taking place in the first place. And that sort of, um, that, and they're doing this all on the power um, from a carve out in the law, in the legislation. Yeah. So, I mean, it's absolutely insane. And, and um, unfortunately, um, we haven't had, we've had liberal governments who have had this, have been in power for years and haven't done anything about this, um, the carve out in the EPBC Act and also in the, the secondary boycotts. Well, that, in, the in, fairness, in, fair, in fairness, they did try to, uh, I think it was even Malcolm Turnbull, did try to uh, roll that back th in the, but was the, blocked in the Senate. But gosh, this would be a good time to have another crack at it, wouldn't it, Kurt? Yeah, so definitely, I think, um, it's, um, especially with uh, the events of Adani and the, the and Morrison winning the climate change election and having um, a lot of um, a power from that, I think it's a, it's a, a great time for the, the government to review this um, with both both those sections. So both um, from the EPBC Act and also from for the for the boycotts as well. Yeah. So Scott Morrison, if you if you're listening, uh, you might be on. Is he still on Shark One? I don't I don't know. Um, on the way <laughs> back from uh, the US, but are, uh, are we genuinely calling it Shark One now? We're, we're doing that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. At least for as long as he's prime minister, which. Um, He'll take some shifting, actually. He will take some shifting. Yeah, but um, and uh, yes, and and of course, uh, just to close out on on mining, of course, this has real consequences. 150 people have lost their jobs, and uh, business investment in Australia is at the lowest levels it's been for almost 50 years. This this is um, this is really impacting our economy, and then we sit around and wonder why all our growth forecasts are being downgraded, and we're in a per capita recession. But on that cheery note, <laughs> um, speaking of prime ministers, um, Kevin Rudd was prime minister twice, in fact, and and it, re it reminds me this as we come up to this segment, uh, I was on a very similar panel show twenty years ago called The Spin on Melbourne's Three Triple R. Started it with a group of friends, and uh, there was uh, Anne Peacock um, used to have a great spread in the Sunday Herald Sun. And we, uh, we made it a regular segment. It was where Anne stands. We, <laughs> we, could, we could actually talk about, you know, what Anne had written about. And there's so much that Kevin's now writing that I think we need a regular segment. Uh, I'm playing around with something like, you know, what's bugging Kevin? Kev's views. Yeah, no, no, it's got a, it's got a rhyme. I think what's bugging Kevin. What's bugging Kevin. Yeah, yeah. no, well, I, we I need think that's to, we, need, we need to talk about Kevin. I, I think that is a <laughs> – we need to talk about Kevin. <laughs> we never need to talk about Kevin. I think that's a sure way to get more and more listeners to keep talking about Kevin Rudd. But Kevin Rudd, you're right, is back with more thought leadership. Um, this is a passion of – 
um, the podcast. This is a passion of the IPA. We closely read Kevin Rudd's essays <laughs> um, uh, for gems of thought leadership. Anyway, so this time it's been kicked off. Another round of thought leadership has been kicked off by a speech given at the end of August at the University of Sydney. Um, uh, it's pretty same old, same old. Um, the complacent country is his theme, talking about structural challenges around inequality, technology, climate change, geopolitics, etc., etc. But what is of interest and his focus um, and uh, and in a funny way, this might be kind of the direction Labor is heading, not because Kevin Rudd is deeply plugged into um, uh, Labor Party thought leadership circles, but because he's reflecting back, I think, how Labor actually thinks things have gone wrong over the last couple of years. And so he's talking about the threat to democracy itself. And the main threat to democracy in Kevin Rudd's views is the Murdoch empire, the Murdoch beast, the nature of the Murdoch beast, I quote, is deeply ideological. It has a far right wing agenda. And of course, it's framed entirely about how this affects Labour and Labour in opposition and Labour in power. The absolute, I'm quoting again, the absolute concentration of media power in Murdoch's hands now represents a fundamental challenge to the future of our democracy. He goes on to cl- complain about the faux left, which of course are the Greens, um, who are more, more uh, who enjoy ripping apart Labour more than they enjoy taking government. But I think this is not an uninteresting thing to talk about because in 2010, 2011, 2012, this was the primary fixation of the Labour government, the fact that the media was against them and they will never get power or they'll never be able to use the power once they've gotten if um, if there's a right-of-centre media outlet barking back at them every time they try to do something. Um, Zach, uh, how do you think... Uh, so, and you know... Kevin wants to talk about how we can fix the ABC and all that sort of thing. But he's not wrong that the media landscape has changed. Well, that's the real irony, is that somehow in 2019, with declining television, declining newspaper sales, that's when the Murdoch empire is at its strongest and it's <laughs> at its most influential in being able to decide elections. Basically, his problem is that the Labor Party can't stand up to <coughs> one large media outlet giving them any scrutiny. They're, they're basically, the, the mythology is that if everyone was just as bland and as inane as the ABC treats the Labor Party, then the Labor Party would win all of these elections. And also there's a huge element... <laughs> that might be true. <laughs> yeah. There's a huge element of hypocrisy in, of all people, Kevin Rudd um, calling out the Murdoch press because he was actually the last um, Labor leader to get endorsed by the Murdoch Papers. The Murdoch Papers, pretty much without fail, all supported him in 2007. Well, and look, he, actually, addre- he, he actually, addresses this. Actually, the, only, the longest... So, for whatever reason in this country, you have this tradition of, in the lead-up to the sort of week before election, each of the newspapers will give their editorial line about what the editors at this particular newspaper think um, you should vote for. And the most consistent and therefore arguably the most biased over the last 20 years has been the age. The age actually has the longest record of endorsing the same party at every every election. It's not the Murdoch press. As I said, they endorse Kevin. I I have to say, uh, Kevin does address this and I'm pretty sure I agree with him because... He says, well, the Murdoch, certain Murdoch mastheads, which I think are all of them, but nonetheless, certain Murdoch masters, mastheads technically endorsed me 
in their pre-election editorials. But otherwise, in the year prior, they were seeking to politically disembowel me. That's when the technical pre-election editorial endorsement was deployed. Now, the idea that editorial endorsements mean anything whatsoever. There is no person in the once country... A, once upon a time, I think they did. Yeah, no, but I mean, they're, they're a laughingstock in yeah. 2019. It, it'd be like a you know a, a church leader getting up in the pulpit to say you should vote for the DLP or the ALP. You've got to go back 100 years to yeah. find anything that... No, no, but, like but it, speaks to, it speaks to the failure here of a certain class of politicians that is still reading politics as if it is the early 2000s or the 1980s 1950s. or 1950s or something like that, where you could just know a couple of editors and schmooze those couple of editors, as Kevin Rudd did. In a bar in New York. In a bar in New York. To pick a random place out. But uh, that's uh, part of the, the issue. <laughs> he says, oh, the problem is that Murdoch has 60 to 70% of the, the print readership in this country it's like yeah but print is the least popular medium <laughs> for consuming news in the country so and i think um it's interesting how many people are picking up the herald sun and flick straight to the back cover and read it backwards because all they care about is the sport you know so i think it's um he's putting a lot of weight in um, these newspapers that they don't have anymore and i think it, the other thing to note is that um you, you read um, a lot of the news core papers and it's not right-wing um, propaganda, as, as Kevin Rudd would have you believe. Rudd's universe is anyone slightly to the right of him is far right. And anyone and yet, slightly to the left is faux left. Yeah, <laughs> and, and yet he, his, his, uh, his um, speech is actually incoherent because he speaks about how the far right never attack um, their own side. It's the, it's the left that always are beating up on the, the Labor Party. So that suggests to me that it's actually the far left. Because the far <laughs> left are the radicals who will not engage in party politics and therefore they always criticise the Labor Party for not being pure enough. They're the far left. And he's, he's saying that the right uh, are, are perfectly happy with lionising their own side. And uh, he even says not criticising Malcolm Turnbull. So it's it's clearly it's, that'd be news a, to Andrew Bolt. Well, exactly. Yeah. Various so, other commentators. So it's really it, the centre right versus the far left in this in this um, scheme. Not at all that I'm sort of labelling us the far right, but if we're talking about what Kevin Rudd is actually referring to, which is the centre right, the reasonable right, I think we spend a lot of time tearing each other down. I mean, we are the Institute of Public Affairs. We spend a hell of a lot of time criti critiquing the Liberal Party. It's not our fault that Kevin Rudd isn't paying enough attention. I'm no, quite no. happy to be to be deemed far right. <laughs> I don't think that's a fair characterisation. But, but I think, I think, I think, you, I think you're right. There are issues on the left, and I, I did want to pick up um, too uh, that he's, he's, what he says about the ABC is actually disingenuous. What he's saying is that as part of... Uh, he claims that the only reason why the ABC pays a bison's to what he calls the photo left the Greens um, uh, is because uh, that's um, doing the bidding somehow of the coalition because they don't want their budget cuts. There's a bizarre paragraph in there that you know, this is what the ABC's uh, doing... Um, Scott Morrison wants nothing more than Greens members to be on the yeah, ABC. Yeah, exactly. So, and I would contrast that to the what you might call the Jared Henderson hypothesis, which is, uh, I think, a hypothesis that is standing up pretty well, which is the reason why the ABC 
doesn't it does criticize the ALP but always from the left it's not a tactical measure it's because they are all greens overwhelmingly overwhelming overrepresentation of the green worldview within the ABC so there's yeah, a really good book on this yeah so whenever they say oh we do attack the ALP it's like yes you do and as Jared Henderson points out always from the left Rudd has tried to create an alternative reading of that which it just is so nonsensical it just so, so Kevin Rudd by this stage. I can't is a, even finish the sentence. Kevin, <laughs> Kevin Rudd by this stage is a quaint historical figure. Um, Zach, uh, <laughs> Zach, does this does this reson- Do you think this resonates with the la- way the Labor Party is trying to position itself now, or are we just debating the old man's wars? What's I, I think there is a real sort of um, the Labor Party is the victim narrative that the the Labor Party can't really get out of its own sort of psychological bubble. It's so convinced that everyone is galvanised about climate change and is willing to throw throw the economy out the the door to not even question how much policies are going to cost for that question to even be impertinent. That is the worldview that they've built up for themselves and it is so hard for them to really break out of that box. And I really think that that will be the electoral challenge going forward for the Labor Party is that now that despite the fact that it has no policy reformist agenda, the Liberal Party has pulled itself together in the sense that it's at least looking stable and um, effective compared to this really le- this evil that's going to be so much worse that the Labor Party needs to Kevin 07 again. It needs yeah. to... It needs to pretend that they are fiscally conservative Ke- and all the other lies. Kevin, Kevin Rudd, Kevin funnily enough, us. Kevin Rudd, funnily enough, is the last Labor Party leader who looked like he was happy to be there. <laughs> <laughs> and and um, uh, by the way, for for those in the Labor Party um, who who do share the conspiracy theory about the Murdoch press and do believe that that is the only thing standing between them and the lodge, um, for those though who are th- hoping that generational change would take care of that. I do love that as a tactical measure, Kevin Rudd along the way, having talked about uh, Rupert Murdoch's history, then says, oh, and by the way, Lachlan's no good either. (laughs) He's a climate change denier, um, which I hope is true. Uh, (laughs) But it certainly closed the door on any hopes of a rapprochement uh, between the ALP and and Murdoch uh, as uh, Lachlan's influence over that organisation grows. Yes, it's all going very well for the Labor Party. (laughs) I'm sure Albanese will be very pleased with that. We have reached that part of the podcast where we do reflect on books and culture. And uh, we have some great ones for you today. Who wants to lead off? I might go first. So I've got a, um, a book from actually 2002. It's called The Dream Machine, J.C.R. Licklater and the Revolution that Made Computing Personal. It's technically a biography. Um, uh, J.C.R. Licklater, or Lick, as he's well known, was a psychologist and computer scientist at MIT. He's got a massive legacy in the history of digital computing. Um, may, uh, he's got claims to being originator of um, some of the really basic ideas in artificial intelligence. He's a very famous paper that he wrote on what he called man-computer symbiosis, the way humans and computers or digital devices interact. He was key to the development of the graphical user interface, which is, of course, the mouse-driven graphical 
um, uh, operating systems that we all use now rather than just text inputs. And um, ARPANET, which was the originator of the internet as well. He's a really fascinating character, but the book is magnificent in part because it doesn't always focus on him. It's actually one of the most comprehensive and readable histories of the development of post-war computing. It brings in potted biographies of every major figure that you might be at all interested to learn about. Um, you know, if you don't know enough about Alan Turing, it's got a potted biography of Alan Turing. It ties um, so many of the grand themes um, that we're still debating now, or in fact, we're debating even more now together about particularly the relationship between AI and um, uh, and human agency. So it's a it is a magnificent book, and I, I highly recommend it. No, it's good. Is there any blockchain in there, or is it not? No, no, no. It's pre-blockchain. Um, pre -blockchain, uh, 2002. It? Blockchain was invented in 2009. Scott, I'm happy to give you a personal workshop on this topic. Oh god, I can't wait for uh, that one. If, yep, no, if no, you no, like. No, thank you, Chris. <laughs> I'm, I might jump in here because I, I I will just do a little um, stop press further to our our first segment. Um, uh, I'm about to talk about Wolf Hall, the book, but I do note that uh, Nancy Pelosi has. Uh, confirmed that the Democrats will be setting up an impeachment inquiry against Trump. This was one of the tactical issues. Would they just move the articles of impeachment or would there be further processes? But uh, it does look like there will be a uh, an inquiry established by the House. I mean, one, one strategy that they could adopt, just to, to slightly expand, one strategy they could adopt is just keep an impeachment inquiry dripping away through yeah, the entire become, election. It becomes a media yeah. media thing and and, um, and you don't actually move the articles and you wait, yeah. wait, wait for the election. It's just always in the background. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's part of the noise, um, which I'm sure Joe Biden will be thrilled about. Um, yes, my uh, culture pick for the day is prompted by uh, a colleague shared... The Guardian has been doing its uh, 100 great things of the 21st century because um, uh, it's the Guardian. don't necessarily agree with them, but they uh, they had 100 great, 100 best albums. And they also had 100 best books, both fiction and non-fiction. Scanned through it, saw some some favourites uh, like uh, Canals Guard. And, uh, some bloody awful ones as and well. And some bloody awful ones as well. And, you know, all those sort of middle-brow, lefty things. But... Um, <laughs> And, you know, uh, Harari, Sapiens, you know. That's oh, amazing. I like it. Yeah, yeah, but it was very high up on the list. Anyway, um, <laughs> very happy to see that number one uh, was Wolf Hall by Hilary Mantel. Um, so that came out in 2009. This is the book um, that is a, from the perspective of uh, Thomas Cromwell, the advisor to Henry VIII, um, uh, as he goes about uh, obtaining his divorce, thus breaking with Rome, bringing the uh, Reformation uh, in a sort of a, a strange way to, to England and all of the historical consequences that followed from that. It actually is a remarkable book. I can't remember before or since a book which... Um, where I was as afraid as the character was afraid, dealing with this um, this king who was so determined to get what he wanted that um, you know people you know he would find legal reasons to have people executed, and you know Cromwell himself never knew when this might happen to him, and and of course we know that later it did anyway. But um, and there's there's some things I think that are relevant to themes of looking forward. Um, uh, there's a she creates Hilary Mantel creates a whole backstory for him on the continent, in particular in in Holland, and a lot of the um, the, the commer his uh, commercial and legal training 
in Holland, dealing with merchants, um, and uh, and of course being influenced by the uh, the reform reformed churches on the continent. So rather than him just being this sort of Machiavellian advisor to Henry VIII, she presents him as a character, and who knows how much of this is true, but as a character who is representing, I guess, a, a commercial worldview, mm. a Protestant worldview. A sort of figure of modernity. A thing. figure of modernity up against uh, all these crazy old um, uh, figures out of, uh, uh, you know, more like the, the 14th century, you know, the, the various dukes and earls um, that, that had been used to governing England. And so this was the rise of parliament, the rise of the middle class, uh, the rise of, of the use of legal forms, um, so, of course, there's always a way to get someone executed if that's what the king wants. But Cromwell was very good at giving this legal form. So um, just from an historical perspective, uh, a freedom perspective, and understanding that, that incredible turning point in the, in the history of England with all the consequences that flowed from that, um, highly, highly recommend that book to anyone who hasn't already read it. And the TV show is very good. But yes. It's really embodied by the the um, actor who plays Thomas Cromwell, who I'm Googling because I didn't Mark know. Mark Rellance? Mark Rellance. Sir David Mark Rellance Waters, oh, thank okay. you very much, um, is a magnificent depiction of that character. Yeah, you know, he's great. And he bobbed up in, uh, well, literally in uh, Dunkirk. As well yeah. as the captain of the oh, boat. Oh, of course he did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's that guy. Yeah, yeah. 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 It's, it's amazing <laughs> how the you know the British have all these thesps who you know yes. uh, wander around the various stages of England and do Stratford on Avon and uh, the Globe and and the occasional BBC serial <laughs> and then sort of at the age of fifty five. Yeah. They're suddenly famous <laughs> and they're getting all these calls from Hollywood and, you know, that's what that's what something like Wolf that's, Hall did for you. That, I assume, is the dream. Yeah, well, look at Patrick Stewart. <laughs> he got to be um, Picard. Anyway, that was my pick. Um, so this is my first September in the Philip district and I'm going a bit cabin fevery um, with all the <laughs> AFL. So I thought I'd talk about footy um, as the mother colony understands it. Um, <laughs> and uh, basically the NRL has been become sort of monotonous lately because the Storm and East always are winning in the finals. So everyone's jumping on the Raiders, Canberra Raiders bandwagon because they beat the Storm a couple of weeks ago and now have a home final to try to get into the grand final. Um, but the Raiders themselves are an interesting phenomenon as far as revealing things about our nation's capital, revealing things about Canberra, even from little things like the team has a habit of players going AWOL because... Um, people get so bored in Canberra that there's nothing to do that they all get drunk and they've had issues with even though there's a salary cap and you can only pay your players the same amount, um, people need to be paid more to be bothered to live in Canberra. That seems reasonable. Um, but also the Canberra... That's what the federal government says. And so it's not, it's not the cost of living, it's just, it's just you need to be paid more to live in Canberra. Yeah. <laughs> and um, the Raiders also, their sort of support base reveals something about the dynamics of Canberra um, as a city. So we always think of Canberra purely on the base, back of um, the public servants and that sort of rich sort of snobbery to the extent that for a while the ACT Brumbies, the rugby union team, were more popular than the Raiders um, because leagues thought of as more working class. Um, that's no longer the case. But the Raiders really get their um, supporter base from two areas. One is the sort of rural people around Canberra in the bush capital and the other is sort of the CFMEU types who live in Canberra off the wealth that 
public service pumps in and there's all these construction jobs and all the various things that come out of um, that little microcosm of stealing money from everyone in the rest of the country and going there. Um, <laughs> to the extent that it makes fascinating reading the Canberra Raiders um, la list of last major sponsors. So back when they were good in the early 90s, they were sponsored by Canberra Milk, um, a local conglomerate of dairy farmers that's very wholesome and these sorts of things. But by about 2008, things had gone awry. They were sponsored directly by the CFMEU as their major sponsor for a while. Wow. And after a couple of years, they thought that that was a bit on the nose. Um, so they changed the sponsorship to the Tradies, which is a big poker machine club that is run by the CFMEU. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's all right then. Um, but then they moved on from that corruption, thankfully, and now their major sponsor is Huawei. So. <laughs> uh, Huawei. Yeah. Uh, close followers oh, of the no, IPA. No issues there at all yeah. uh, that, that a Chinese company wants to sponsor the team that's located in the national capital. It's actually reassuring <laughs> um, that, you know, the Chinese Communist Party's intelligence is so misleading that they think it'll be worthwhile to sponsor <laughs> Close, close followers of the IPA will, of course, know that um, the invention of Canberra was listed as one of our 13 biggest mistakes or Australia's 13 biggest mistakes all the way back in, and I'm quickly Googling this, 2006. Um, and we got a lot of negative feedback. When you criticise Canberra, um, a lot of people do complain. And so I would say we apologise, but, you know, this is... No, this no. Is keep, keep those cards and let keep us roll those cards. Just keep writing. <laughs> yeah, no, we'll put a link up to that in notes as well. <laughs> just to underline the point. Yeah, so my pick, um, I've been reading uh, Australia Libertarian magazine. So it's a, a journal and a website. Um, they've had just a new magazine. They've had three issues. The latest one is on socialism. Uh, the previous one was on the ravages of war. Uh, what's interesting about um, this new magazine is it's, it's Austro-Libertarian, so Austro referring to Austrian economics. Um, they're also committed to a, a property-based uh, legal theory. But then the third pillar, which is of interest, is they're actively anti-leftist. So um, in one of the, the editorials in the, the previous, uh, in the most recent edition, um, they outline what they see as um, errors in the libertarian um, broader movement. Um, so one of those being a libertarianism that is basically committed to progressivist uh, leftist ideals but just not wanting to achieve those by the state. Um, so they oppose that uh, version of libertarianism. But also they oppose a, a version of libertarianism that is only concerned with the state and um, state violence and, and actions by government at, uh, and ignore the broader social concerns um, that are going on. So they actively uh, uh, embrace a conservative social view of the world and the importance of um, decentralisation uh, and um, institutions such as family, church and um, conservative social norms and culture. So um, I think this is an interesting, um, a lot of interesting articles coming out through through this website and magazine and um, yeah, I think it's uh, good reading and I recommend to the listeners. Who, who started this, Kurt? Uh, so it was started by um, a guy in America, CJ Engel, who um, I've sort of been following some of his work. Um, he's had previous websites, but he's sort of uh, linked with a lot of like the Mises Institute guys. So um, sort of, um, yeah, there's sort of like a, a history of this sort of libertarian uh, conservative um, outlook um, thing and he he's been uh, pushing this and he's a very uh, solid thinker and um, yeah I recommend 
a lot of his stuff. Yeah, look, I mean, there's there's a tradition within libertarianism and has been for um, at least a couple of decades of um, what has in the past been described as paleo-libertarianism, um, which is sort of flitted between two um, rationales, one of which is the one that you've described, which is that, um, uh, that social conservatism is more... Um, or a, a sorry, a socially conservative worldview is necessary to have a libertarian society. Yeah. The other approach has been, well, there are these social conservatives out there that do just want the state off our back, and why don't we sell our message to that? And um, and the Mises Institute and Murray Rothbard in particular um, spent a lot of time thinking about um, how libertarians relate to social conservatives. Um, from that strategic angle, can we use social conservative ideas to to pursue libertarian goals? I think those are two very different things. But I also think that the um, history of some of these ideas has had has sent libertarians, or at least some libertarians, down some pretty dark paths. And I think that's the the idea that um, a to be a libertarian is to be, I mean, in the three pillar story is, you know, one of the pillars is to be anti-leftist. Well, the way I see this philosophical framework, it's also to be anti-rightist as well. I mean, this is a policy of getting the state out of our lives, whether our lives, uh, our social lives or our economic lives. But, but within that framework, you can be very social conservative. You can be personally... Um, deeply socially conservative on all the issues, gay marriage, abortion, religion. You can be as socially conservative as you want. You just say that the government is should should stay out of those questions or should be liberal to those questions. Well, I think an important thing to note is they're not, they're not arguing that um, being anti-left should be a part of being libertarian. They're saying that libertarianism uh, should be defined as your legal theory about what the state should should be doing and so that's um, a non-aggression principle um, approach and they're saying that in addition to but libertarians not as um, uh, because of their libertarianism but because of you know they, they, they should be cons- people should be concerned about more things than just legal theory and they're saying that um, people should be concerned about these social that's, things as well so and that's true but when does it when does it become just we should be concerned about stuff that isn't uh, public policy I mean that's definitely true you should be concerned about your family you should could be concerned about listening to good music and watching good movies you could be concerned about watching good sports and that sort of thing so outside our public policy views and values we can have personal values about the way we conduct ourselves, are we honest, um, our personal values about the, the sanctity of our own personal marriage or the sanctity of everybody else's marriage. We can have lots of views. I don't think libertarianism has ever claimed to be an all-encompassing view about all things in the world. Some, some leftists believe that their progressivism is that, but I don't think that's libertarianism. Yeah, but I think the the important thing to note is if you are a social conservative and you have these personal views about what is good for, for people to pursue, that it's not just that um, you you want to promote that on a societal level. So if I believe that um, certain things about you know conservative norms, I think that that's important to promote um, so that other people will follow those things. So I think that it's uh, it's important not just to have sort of a a hands off everyone just pursues their own idea of what's good, but also looking to, if you actually believe in your own personal values and that you think that there are objective values, 
um, yeah. then you should be looking to um, expand that and to influence other people. And because you're a libertarian, not by means of the state, but by means of um, social institutions. And I, what, uh, actually, uh, what, how I see this, Chris, is, um, I mean, you've mapped out the historic debates. I think, I think we're at a moment now where uh, the original political fusionist movement was just that it was a political movement. It was essentially saying, uh, William F. Buckley, Ronald Reagan, we'll take, we'll take the libertarians, we'll take the conservatives and we'll take the Christians and we'll, uh, and we'll create a movement that will we'll take back the White House and, and take back the House. And that was a very, that was successful uh, as a political strategy uh, when, uh, as perhaps um, somebody who doesn't you know, quite have a, a dog in this hunt or a dog... What is it? Horse in this race? Dog in this hunt? Whatever. Um, to quite that same extent, what I observe is that there is a real push going on, uh, mainly in America, to some extent in Australia, to uh, in not have a fusionist model, but to to reconstruct philosophy so that that coalition is built at the philosophical level. You know, some, something like this journal is saying we we don't want to be just libertarians who are part of this broader political movement we we actually want to frame that in our own way so the uh the austrians are thinking that way we've seen a a resurgence of you know uh, catholic social thought integral integralism uh which we've talked about on this this podcast um this is breaking out all over the place how how where it's all going to go will be very interesting to watch. i'm not sure it's viable because political coalitions work i'm not sure you can actually just create a, a philosophy ab, ab initio which is going to sweep the right. My uh, my observation is that so much of this is about Donald Trump. Um, so much of the debate, even when Donald Trump is not mentioned, even when the presidency is not mentioned, even when the conversation happens outside um, uh, the normal discussions about public policy, so much of it is about people trying to reckon with... Um, uh, the 2016 election, which looked like a rejection of that um, free markets plus conservative model. And uh, and when we have these debates about national conservatism and the Amari versus French debate, which we've discussed on this podcast, when we have all these debates about the role of sovereignty, the future of liberalism, I just think so much of it is about Donald Trump. The question is, regardless of how Donald Trump leaves office, whether it's tomorrow in uh, two years or in six years, what will it look like after that? Well, there you go. We, we opened the show talking about Trump and we're going to close the show talking <laughs> about Trump. Uh, for the uh, those who are interested in Austrian economics and want to see something on more traditional grounds, Kurt will in fact be in the next IPA review with an article on the very, very strange monetary policy that our Australia's own Reserve Bank uh, has embarked upon. And uh, rest assured, there are some episode quotes from Murray Rothbard in there. <laughs> so well done, Kurt. No, very good page. And you can receive four copies a year of the IPA review if you are a member. Uh, to find out more about that, if you're not already a member, please do go to ipa.org.au. A big thank you to our panellists today, Chris Berg. Thank you, Scott. Kurt Wallace. Thank you. And Zachary Gorman. Cheers. And a big thank you to our uh, incredible team of uh, techs and creatives, um, Saul Muscatel and Joshua Stranger. It's been you've been listening to. Looking forward, we'll be back next week.